Welcome to Redemption's podcast. Before we dive into the content, I want to invite you to follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook to stay current on all things redemption. You will find both of these accounts by searching Redemption STL. More than anything, we hope that this podcast will help inspire and challenge you to take your next steps in following Jesus. If you have any questions about God, Christianity, or redemption, reach out through DM on social media or text us at 314-391-4141. And now, without further ado, here's the content you're looking for. Enjoy. Well, last week we introed our, our series, Kingdom Economics, and uh, what we said was that less is more. And, and when it comes to uh, Christ's kingdom, when it comes to kingdom economics, and this isn't kingdom, uh, or sorry, this isn't uh, high school economics 101, this is kingdom economics. And, and in Christ's kingdom, he would say that less is more. We read this from Ecclesiastes 4, verse 6. It says, better to have one handful with quietness than two handfuls with hard work and chasing the wind. We said that although that we've, we may have been taught that mo money equals no problems, that is not, that is not true at all, right? Uh, we should have listened to Biggie and, uh, and, and Diddy, right? Because uh, the reality is this, that mo money does, in fact, equal mo problems. Though the world teaches us what we need is what we do not have, Jesus is teaching us that in his kingdom, less is more, and we have everything that we need in him. Uh, this thought was not included in last week's uh, sermon, but I came across it this past week, and I think it's just so beautiful. I, I want us to chew on this because ultimately, uh, when it comes down to this, like I trust you as godly people. I live life with you, and I know uh, that, that, that this isn't a, you know, a struggle for you as much, but I think our world struggles with this. Plato says this. He says, no wealth can ever make a man or never make a bad man at peace with himself. No wealth can ever make a bad man at peace with himself. And all the time we see uh, people on trial and people just going through hard things that they brought upon themselves by their own sins. And no matter what their wealth is, it doesn't make them at peace with who they are at the end of the night. And so this is, kingdom economics is very different than the world's economics, right? You can have all the money in the world, but like we read last week, Christ is telling us this in Matthew 6, 33, seek the kingdom of God above all else, live righteously, and he will give you everything that you need. In setting up for this series, I said that there are four things that I don't want from you, but I want for you. Again, in this series, I want something for you, not things from you. And the four things are this, I want you to be debt free, number one. And number two, I want you to stop putting others into your debt because we said this, that debt is not just uh, a debt that you owe to the debt collectors or the bank, but a debt is also the way that you live life uh, in juxtaposition with the people around you. All of a sudden, keeping up with the Joneses, that you are in somebody else's debt. They become the black line, you're in the red, and all you have to do is get to their line or beat them uh, to be able to keep up with them. And so what you do is you put them, or, or sorry, you are in their debt. So I want you to be debt-free, but I also want you to stop putting others into your debt. Number three, I want you to be able to give a lot of money away. And not just to your church, a lot of money, right? Uh, and number four, I want you to make a lot of money. Somebody said this past week, they said, I'm so surprised that you said that you want us to make a lot of money. I've never heard a pastor say that. And uh, we're going to kind of, you know, deal with that a little bit more in the sermon today. Um, but uh, welcome to Redemption. Glad you're here. I hope you make a lot of money. All right. Uh, and then throughout the whole series, we said this, that we will be talking about these three things. And I want you to repeat after me. The first thing is this, less is more. Uh, God is better. And giving is godly. So less is more, God is better, giving is godly. Today we're going to talk about God is better. In 1954, there was a book that was released called Lord of the Rings, Fellowship of the Ring. 
yes, right. I did not read the book, uh, but I did uh, in 2001. Its namesake movie was dropped, and it was a you know it was a total like blockbuster, right? It, it destroyed the box office in the best of ways. It was an incredible, incredible movie. I love this movie. I, okay, who who would totally choose to live in the Shire over wherever you live now? Because I would. I want to live in the Shire. I do so badly. Like first and second breakfast. Come on, you know. By the way, I think first watch is totally missing it. Like they need to put like first and second breakfast. Like name, they need to name one on there. Like first breakfast, second breakfast have categories. I don't know. Anyway, um, but first and second breakfast, like you're hanging out, pranking all your best friends and I don't know, drinking meat or whatever. And then like, and, and, you're, and you're just with like, it's a party all day long, right? I mean, it's like an extrovert's dream. Anyway, uh, so the movie, it, it got an 8.8 out of 10. All right. Totally deserving, right? It, it deserved that for sure. Uh, quick trivia from the movie: Sean Bean, who plays Boromir, um, he, he he played throughout you know the movies, and he was um, he's totally fearful of flying, like freaks out with flying. I think some of us can relate to that. And uh, and so what's so interesting about this is uh, he th- there was this one scene that was like at the top of a snowy mountain. And they had to get to the very top of this mountain. To do that, what they did is they helicoptered the cast and crew from the bottom all the way to the top of the mountain every single day until they finished this scene. And Sean Bean, Boromir, was like, "Uh uh-uh, not having it, okay? So this dude, he got dressed up as Boromir, all right? He got his makeup done and everything, and then he took a two-hour hike up the mountain, filmed his parts, and then hiked two hours back down because he said, there's no way I'm getting in this helicopter. So anyway, that's hilarious. I think, again, I think some of us can appreciate the dedication to not flying, all right? Um, so it's one of my favorite movies, uh, Peter Jackson, Hello, Elijah Wood, right? Uh, uh, Viggo Mortensen, Rudy, come on. Uh, Ian McKellen, you know, like the action, the overcoming evil, the underdogs, like chef's kiss, right? Okay, it's amazing, all right? So um, there's a scene, though, in the movie, I think, that really mirrors our hearts when it comes to money. Uh, Bilbo Baggins, he's leaving his, his home in the Shire. This is right after like this awesome uh, firework thing and Pippin and all those guys are doing crazy stuff and whatever. It's the very beginning of the movie, right? And so Bilbo's getting ready to go on a long journey and, and Gandalf is there. Gandalf kind of surprises him, right? And, uh, and so they honor Bilbo at this thing and then he goes back to his home in the Shire and he's, he's getting ready to leave and he's getting ready to leave everything to Frodo. He doesn't know how long he's going to be gone and, and what the journey looks like. And so he's going to leave everything to Frodo and this is kind of where we, where we pick up. Right, right, right before this, um, Bilbo says to Gandalf that he's going to leave the ring to Frodo as well. Okay, so he has a ring, the ring, right? And Bilbo says this, he says, uh, this ring is here in, in my pocket. Uh, isn't that odd now? Yet after all, why not? Why shouldn't I keep it? Gandalf says, I, I think you should leave the ring behind, Bilbo. Is that so hard? Well, no. And yes. Now it comes to it, I, I don't feel like parting with it. It's mine. I found it. It came to me. Gandalf says, there's, there's no need to get angry. Well, if I'm angry, it's your fault. It's mine, my own, my precious. <laughs> Gandalf says, precious. It's been called that before, but not by you. What business is it of yours, what I do with my own things? Gandalf says, I think you've had that ring quite long enough. You want it for yourself. 
And this is where Gandalf, <laughs> he gets real big, right? The camera goes down and it looks up and the, and, and the screen behind him gets real dark and, and Gandalf gets real serious and he says, Bilbo Baggins, do not take me for some conjurer of cheap tricks. And then he calms down and he says, I'm not trying to rob you. I'm trying to help you. And then Gandalf kneels down. He gets down on Bilbo's, right? I mean, Hobbit, okay? Hobbit and, and not Hobbit. Okay, he gets down on Hobbit level. He looks him in the eye and he says this, all your long years, we've been friends. Trust me as you once did. Let it go. This scene with Bilbo and Gandalf is, has more to do with us than I think we're willing to admit. It's very relatable. Uh, it's very relatable. We believe this, that if I found something, it's, it's mine. It came to me. I found it. It's my precious. And that's something that we believe, right? We believe that in our system, if something we've worked so hard for, if we own it then, then it is ours, right? And by the way, uh, that's the capitalistic system that we live in. And by the way, that's the best financial system out there, okay? All systems have flaws. But capitalism is amazing. And in that, um, you know, we, we believe that if we work hard for something, it is ours. And we can do with it whatever we will. And don't mind the fact that 25% of it's taken by the government every year, right? Um, but, but even still, okay, beyond that, we believe that we're able to keep the rest. And when God commands us to give a portion of our precious to him, I think that our first reaction is to react the way that Bilbo reacted to Gandalf. Uh, with saying this, what business is it of yours, what I do with my things, you want it for yourself. That's what we want to say. What we said last week was this, that we can have money, but money can't have us. We can own things, but things can't own us. But I think that when I say that, I think that many of you are thinking this, money doesn't have me because I don't have enough of it for it to have me. Come on, can I get an amen? Anybody? Uh, come on, I need a little more money, all right? I, money doesn't have me. Uh, I just need more of it. Uh, I think that's what we feel in our hearts, right? What we say is not always what Bilbo would say. We don't always say, uh, it came to me, it's mine, it's my precious. We don't, we don't always say that, you know, hey, you want it for yourself, God. But I think if we're being honest, if we said the words that we only whisper in our hearts when nobody else is around, right? I think that what we would say is, I worked so hard for this. Like, I have a job. Don't mind the fact that God provided you that job. I have a job, right? And I worked hard. Don't mind the fact that God gave you those skills and abilities to be able to work that hard at that job, right? Um, and, 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 and uh, you know, I have this, like, income. And, and don't mind the fact that God is keeping that company alive for you to get that income, right? And, uh, and, and I bring it home every single week. Like, don't mind the fact that, that God is literally keeping the country and everything around you running so that you can live this life, okay? Like, everything runs by God. It all rises and falls by God. But ultimately, I think if we were honest, if we said the words that were in our hearts that we only whisper to ourselves in the quiet places, I think what we would say is that, you know, it's hard to give the money away. It's hard to not let it grip my heart because I don't know what the church is going to do with it. And if I was being honest, like, I'm going to make a sweeping generalization. I just don't know if I can trust churches. And I get it. I actually, uh, back when I was in, in uh, just out of college, I was at a church, and I was a college pastor at this church, and I stopped giving to the church when 
they made a hire that I didn't agree with. We're going to talk about that next week. Um, and, um, and it wasn't the church's fault. It was my fault. It wasn't the church's problem. It was my problem. We're going to talk about that again next week. So come back for week three as we talk more about that. But I think at the end of the day, we believe um, that entrusting our entire uh, or entrusting portion of our finances, our precious to God, um, is harder, it's harder than, than, than we want to think it is, right? It's an easy thing. But I know this, that uh, I don't know if you've ever thought about it this way, but if, if we don't trust God with the things in our life, and not just financial things, but, but anything, if we don't trust God with the things in our life, effectively what we're doing is we're choosing to trust somebody who can't complete their taxes on their own <laughs> instead of the creator of the universe, Right? Uh, what we're doing effectively is we're, we're choosing to trust somebody that had to look at an email a hundred times to see if they put too many exclamation points in it or if they were too curt or if they were too, too permissive or too loving and, and they just can't get it right. And the email sits there for two hours because they don't know if it's right rather than trusting the creator of the universe. Like we struggle to get, every single morning, we struggle to get our coffee from our kitchen to our sofa or to our desk without spilling it, okay? Like we're choosing to trust ourselves over the creator of the universe. And he's always more trustworthy than we are. And so to do that, to stop putting faith in ourselves, to, to decide to trust something else better than us, we have to do this. To trust God, I have to decide that he is better than me. I have to decide that he is better than me. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the table of contents. And, uh, and we're going to go uh, together uh, here at Redemption. We always uh, go to the table of contents first. And so no matter where you're coming from, uh, biblically, you can jump in with us. We're going to go to the table of contents in the first couple pages of your Bible. If you have a digital Bible or a physical Bible, and we're going to jump to one of the Gospels. A Gospel is an account of Jesus' life. There's four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Luke is the, is the longest one, and that's the one that we're going to be going to today. We're going to go to Luke chapter 18, and, um, and today we're going to be looking at the story of this young man who spoke with the creator of the universe. And uh, at the end of the day, he goes away sad from the creator of the universe because he was a very wealthy man, and he had an idol at the center of his heart, and it wasn't Jesus. And so today's going to serve as a cautionary tale to the wise, and it's going to be dismissed by the fool. And you have an opportunity on the front end to choose who you are. Let me uh, pray for our hearts as we turn to it. Uh, God, I thank you so much that you give us your word. I thank you that you um, have uh, proven to us time and time again, not just through the pages of scripture, but also uh, through the, the faithfulness in our lives, that you are better. God, that you are so good. And Lord, we don't need anything else. We want nothing else but you. And, and God, we say that and we, we, we want that in our hearts, um, but sometimes our actions don't follow. They don't show that. So God, I pray that you would destroy the hypocrisy in us. God, I pray that you would take the two-faced um, uh, just ability that we have to, to be one thing and act differently, act differently or, or say one thing and live differently. I pray that you would destroy that that you would make us whole, that you would make us people of integrity. And, uh, and God, I pray that uh, the words that we speak and the thoughts in our mind and the feelings in our heart would all be the same. And I pray they'd be centered on you. I pray that we would give you trust, um, or that we would trust you and, and, and give our lives over to you. 
so that, um, so that you can rule them. And it's all this things we ask in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right, so uh, Luke chapter 18, we're going to start in verse 18, and, and, uh, and here we go. Uh, once a religious leader asked Jesus this question, good teacher, what should I do to inherit eternal life? Okay, so first of all, uh, this, this man, Scripture uh, describes him as a religious leader in other, uh, you know, other places in Scripture and just different uh, translations. We'll talk about him as the rich young ruler. They'll also talk about him as a religious leader. So what's interesting about this is he's a pastor. He's a priest. He's, he, he's, a, he's, a, he's a leader of Jewish people. Now, you may not know this because you didn't study how you know, Jewish people become uh, rabbis in Jesus' day and age, um, but, but I, I did a little bit right throughout school. And, and, and really, there's three different uh, seminary level um, levels that they or, or schools that they would have to go through. The first one is called the Beit Sefer. The second one is called the Beit Talmud. And the third one is called the Beit Midrash. The Beit Sefer starts when they're six years old, and it goes until they're roughly 10 years old. Okay, so they start school at six years old. Like most of the kids in our community, right, they're like, you know, hoping they get fish sticks and hoping they learn colors, okay? These kids are like, teach me about God. I'm six, like, let's go, right? And, uh, and so anyway, uh, six years old, what they started to do is they started to learn the Bible, uh, the Pentateuch, the Torah, the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They started at six years old, and it stopped at 10, now, you may think at 10, they passed a test, and they could, like, answer all the questions about the Torah. No. At 10, they had the Torah memorized. Word for word. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. You thought you had a smart kid. Okay. All right. So then, starting at 10, they went to the Beit, Mid, or, or, sorry, the Beit Talmud. The Beit Talmud, then, is working on the rest of the Old Testament. Now, again, uh, the rest of the Old Testament is what? It's Joshua through Malachi. All right? So, effectively, by the time they turn 13 to 15, it depends on how smart they are, 13 to 15 years old, they have Genesis through Malachi memorized. And, and, and hear me on this. This should be a shame on us because if I took a poll right now, I would say that probably less than 20% of this room has read Genesis through Malachi, let alone memorize it. Now, I get it. You're not trying to be a rabbi, but come on, guys. Like, if we believe this thing, we got to dig into it. We have 15-year-olds out there that had it memorized. Okay. So Genesis through Malachi, that's the Beit Talmud. The Beit Midrash is chosen by a, a rabbi then to be an understudy. That's around 15 years old. What they would do is they would apply just like as if they were a, um, a journeyman, right? They would apply with the rabbi. They had to be chosen by the rabbi. Very few were chosen at this point, okay? Very few passed the Beit Talmud, uh, all right? So it wasn't like, you know, everybody. Um, but the best of the best of the best then became uh, students in the Beit Midrash, and they follow a rabbi along. And if they passed through that, they were a religious leader in the church. They themselves were known as a rabbi or a Pharisee or a Sadducee, and they passed all that stuff. Now, we don't know at this point if this guy is trying to trap Jesus because the reality is that the Pharisees and the Sadducees over and over and over again try to trap Jesus. But, but spoiler, I don't think he's trying to trap him. I think he's very sincere about this question. And what a beautiful question this is. Let's ask it again. What should I do to inherit eternal life? If we go our entire lives and we don't ask that question, we are foolish. What should I do to inherit eternal life? This question is deeper than we realize, and it's a question that needs to be asked around bonfires this summer, around cocktails, over coffee, over breakfasts. This is a question that needs to be asked. 
It's a question that you need to ask others. What do you have to do to receive eternal life? What does that look like in your life? This man's asking the right questions. Why do you call me good, Jesus asked him. Only God is truly good. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not commit adultery. You must not murder. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. Honor your father and mother. The man replied, I have obeyed all these commandments since I was young. Now, emphasis mine. I don't think that he was coming at Jesus, okay? But he says, I've obeyed all these commandments since I was young. All of them. Okay, let's, let's pause and reflect for a moment. Why is Jesus bringing the law into this? This is, a, this is a question, this conversation here, so far, is not about money. Has money been talked about? No. Um, all we know at this point is the guy wants eternal life. He, he wants to live forever. He wants to be in the presence of God. He wants to be in heaven. This is what he wants. And Jesus then brings in the law after asking this guy, hey, I've, you know, do all these things. And the guy's like, I've done it all. I've completed it. I've done every single one of these things. It's so interesting, but why the law? Jesus knows this. Even if we could keep the law perfectly from now till our death, we would still be found guilty of breaking the law because if we break one portion of the law, we've broken the entire law. Let me show you. In James chapter 2, verses 10 through 11, uh, it says this, For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. See, we often view God's commandments in these levels of importance. We give them value statements. Like this over here, like don't murder, that's pretty important, all right? So let's put that in the important jar. It's like we have two jars, right? Let's put that in the important jar. But okay, like uh, don't look at porn, that's not that important. Okay, so let's put it in the not important jar, all right? Uh, don't rape. Okay, yeah, let's put that over here in the important jar, all right? Okay, don't gossip. Not that big of a deal. Let's put it in the not important jar, right? That's what we do with these things. And, and it's, you know, it's, it's one of those things that's like, well, you know, it's, it's only a white lie. It got me out of trouble at work. Not that big of a deal, right? It's not that big of a deal. Yeah, I slept with her. She's my girlfriend, though. And we love each other. We've been together for three years, right? I mean, who cares if we're married? Not that big of a deal, okay? No, it's not, 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 not that big of a deal. Yeah, I, I looked at her. I lusted after her, but I didn't, I didn't do anything, right? So not that big of a deal. Uh, yeah, I'm drunk. But I'm in my own house, you know, and like I don't plan on going out, so I'm just going to have a fifth one. Like it's not that big of a deal. It's, no, it's, it's a big deal, right? Sin is sin. This past week I was having a conversation with someone, and, uh, and it's a long story. But the long story short is they said, they said, but wait a minute. They go, what about like if a boyfriend sleeps with a girlfriend before they're married? And I was like, yeah, sin. Yeah, that's, that's sinful. Yeah, God would say that. And they're like, but you would, you would like share that with your congregation that you believe that that's sin? And I started laughing. I go, it's really funny that you say that because it's already in my notes for Sunday. That's not a joke. It really is. And this was already written. And um, listen, there are certain things. We don't get to choose what is sin and what's not. We don't get to choose it. I wish we could. I wish we did. Uh, because my omelet would be awesome, right? You ever been to like one of those omelet stations and you're like, yeah, like these are my ingredients. What are your ingredients? Like we treat truth like an, like an omelet station at a, you know, a really like fancy hotel. And, uh, and so we're like, yeah, like what, what, what ingredients do you want in your omelet, right? But that's not what Jesus does. And again, what we're doing here is we're trying to learn how to live in the kingdom, we're trying to learn how to live in God's kingdom, and we don't get to choose what is right or what is wrong. We follow a king, 
a king, and all hail the king, okay? He is glorious, and he will get glory, all right? We follow a king, and he sets the rules. He sets the law of the land, and you don't get to choose it, and neither do I. But I wish I could, but man, I can't. Like I said, my omelet, it'd be awesome, right? But here's the thing. The Old Testament is, uh, is backing Jesus, and Jesus is backing the Old Testament, and they work together synonymously, and Jesus is bringing in the law. He's asking this guy, uh, what about these, these commandments? He's bringing in the law through the Mosaic law, through the Ten Commandments. What Jesus is ultimately getting at is the same outcome of punishment. Let me give you an example. If you're driving through the kingdom of Missouri and you get pulled over because you had five and you uh, get taken out of your car and put against the car and, and what's going to happen? You're going to get handcuffed and what's going to happen next? You're getting thrown in the slammer, baby. You're going to jail, okay? Uh, listen, if you call me from jail and, 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 and you were drunk and then you got you know arrested, like I'm, I'm going to be there. I'm going to love you deeply. I'm going to be there with you, okay? Uh, not in, in there because I'm drunk too. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be there with you because I love you and I'm going to go meet you in, uh, in, in jail and hang out with you, okay? But anyway... Um, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll post your bail. <laughs> okay. All right. Good catch. All right. So anyway, uh, but if you get, if you get thrown in jail for, for drinking, all right, uh, did you abuse somebody that night? No. Did you murder somebody that night? No. But is the outcome of punishment, at least in the immediate, the same? Yes. You go to jail. And see what, what, what scripture teaches us is that when we break one rule, when we break, when, when, when we break one law, we've broken it all, right? You break one law, you've broken it all. And so the same uh, punishment uh, is given to us, okay? So uh, likewise, James, he's getting at this point of punishment. If we break one, we break it all. Uh, also, the Bible says this about punishment in Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is what? It's death. It doesn't say the wages of the big sins are death. It doesn't say the wages in the important jar sins are death, right? You know, it says that the wages of sin. It doesn't matter what the sin is. The wages of your sin is death. So let's get back to the law. What's the purpose of the law? Have you ever asked yourself that question? What's the purpose of the law? I think that for many of us, we've been reading the Bible our entire lives. For some of us, we've read the Bible cover to cover. And, and right now, you know, I'm, I'm in Exodus. Uh, I went Genesis, Job, Exodus. I'm reading through the Bible in a year right now. And, and, um, and if, you've, if you've read through the Bible and you get through all these parts of the law, and you probably thought you know, for a moment and said, what's the purpose of all this? Like, what's the purpose of the law? Here's the beautiful thing. At Redemption, um, we, we, don't, we don't come up with our own answers. I don't know if you know this, but like, there's not like a book of Corey answers that he just gives apart from scripture. And, and then there's like scripture. And I'm like, well, scripture says this, but Corey says, right? No, no, Jesus said that, right? Jesus said, as it is said, right? Or as it is written, but I tell you, right? And he, he, he fulfilled, he made it better. He enhanced it. Uh, I don't get to do that. Why? Because I'm not going to die on a cross for your sins anytime. I'm not God. Even if I did die on a cross, nothing's going to happen. I'm just going to be in the ground. And so we get our, we get our answers where? Not from me. I'm not your priest. I'm not your pope. I'm not, I'm not this like, you know, special intercessor between whatever, blah, 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 blah. That was old covenant stuff. We're in the new covenant and we get our answers from where? From the Bible. So let's go to the Bible. In Galatians chapter 319 says this, it says, why then was the law given? Why do we have it? What's the purpose of it? It was given alongside the promise to show people their sins. That's why we have the law. Because we're sinful people and we needed to be shown that we're sinful people. The law was created not to justify us before a holy God or save us without or in place of a holy God. It was created and given to us to reveal our sin. 
And so Jesus is giving this man the law in order to peel back his heart and to show on the inside what is the idol that is burning and glowing inside of him. What's the thing that grips his heart? What's the thing that has him? Right? We can have money, but money can't have us. What's the thing that has him? What's the idol that's sitting at the center of his heart? Because he can't see it. But here's the thing. Even though the man couldn't see it, Jesus could see it. The reason that Jesus could see it isn't only because he's God, but it's because the man wore the idol in his clothes. And he drove the idol in his chariot. And he vacationed in the idol uh, through his, you know, his opulent vacations. He, he, was, he was throwing extravagant parties and every party had his idol dripping with it. Some idols are subtle and quiet, but the idol of money is different. It grips our heart and it shows in our lives. And notice I said this. This is where I need you to pay real close attention and not sound bite me. <laughs> the idol of money. Remember our basic truth from last week. We can have money, but money can't have us. We can own things but things can't own us. The idol of money. Let's finish what is said here, and then we'll say more about that, okay? How does Jesus respond? When Jesus heard this answer, he said, there is still one thing that you haven't done. Sell all your possessions and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. But when the man heard this, he became very sad, for he was very rich. When Jesus saw this, he said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard this said, then who in the world can be saved? It's a great question. Jesus replied, what is impossible for people is possible with God. I want to be careful here because I, I, what I don't want to do, let's go back to the idol of money. Let's go back to this. What I don't want to do is this. I, I don't want to commit the same sin and step in the same craziness that misguided believers have done for centuries. This idea that, um, uh, and it's very narrow-minded and, uh, and, and wrong, I believe. I think scripture backs it up clearly. This idea that we can't have money that you can't be wealthy. No, no, no. Paul says, he says, I, I've, I, in all things, in all things, you know, I've learned to live in, in wealth. I've learned to uh, live in poverty, right? He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. There, was, there were moments where Paul was very wealthy. There was moments where he was very poor. But he says, it doesn't matter. It doesn't change my identity. It doesn't change who I am. I love the fact that Paul could go from being very wealthy to being very poor. You know what that means? It means that burning at the center of his heart wasn't a golden calf. It means that burning at the center of his heart wasn't stacks of money, but it was Jesus. That's what has to burn at the center of our hearts. And over and over and over in Scripture, many times, God promises overflowing, overflowing storehouses of grain, uh, just incredible harvests of produce, overflowing vats of wine. And he promises these things to some of his children as blessings to them. And guess what? That was their wealth. And it came overflowing to them. 
Wealth is not bad. By the way, let's go back to the wine thing just right there. There's a, when God promises he's going to give you vats of wine, come on, let's go. Uh, that's <laughs> right, right there. It goes to show us that uh, uh, God is not, uh, is, is not um, angry with us drinking. It's not wrong, not sinful. Um, I want you to catch something super interesting about, these, uh, about this religious leader, okay? This rich young ruler. This is fascinating when you really think about it. It's a stupid truth, but it's a very simple truth. Sometimes the most simple truths and the most stupid truths are the most profound truths, and they're right in front of our eyes, and sometimes it's hard to see them. So I want to bring this out. Here it is. This religious leader was wanting to entrust God with his eternity before trusting him with his now. Uh, How crazy is that? He was okay trusting him with everything, like everything after his last breath. He he was okay with giving him everything. Like I I said a couple weeks ago, that we're going to live for 80 years, roughly. That's about it, 80 years, right, on average. This man was saying that, hey, after my last breath, after my last heartbeat, in perpetuity, Jesus, I trust you with everything. But for now, I don't know about that, Jesus. I don't know if you're trustworthy for that. Let, let me live my life now, right? And, and I, I think if we're really honest about this, by the way, um, most of our, most of our, uh, our pleasures, whatever they shape out as and whatever they look like, they're more fleeting. They're more fleeting than they are. Um, 80 years. It doesn't take us 80 years to give over to pleasures. Most of our pleasures are 30 minutes, an hour, a nighttime. But beware of the party at night, because in the morning brings the hangover, right? There's always consequences for our actions. This man, this religious leader, he believed that he was perfect. Okay, get this. By the Ten Commandments, which he was not, He believed that he had kept all his commandments from youth, and there was probably just something that he had to do. But Jesus then calls him to sell his possessions and give them all away to the poor, and the guy is destroyed. Why? Because he didn't have money. Money had him. If there is ever something that you can't give away to follow God, then you don't follow God. You follow the thing that you won't give up. You aren't worshiping God, you are worshiping a thing, and worshiping anything other than God is what? It's idolatry. And when Jesus told the man to sell all his possessions to follow him, the man went away sad because he realized in that moment that he was breaking the very first of the Ten Commandments. You must not have any other God but me. God wanted to call this man, known as a rich young ruler, to follow him, but the man decidedly decided what? He decided that money was better. But what we know is this. God is better. God is better. I think that we uh, can all relate to the rich young ruler on some level. Why? Because we, we just want to do something to earn our salvation. We, we don't We don't feel like we can trust somebody else to take care of it. We want to do it often. Faithfully following Jesus, though, it doesn't mean adding. It means subtracting. It doesn't mean that you have to add something to win it over, to win it back. Sometimes it means taking away. 
Sometimes it means subtracting, and Jesus is asking this man to subtract something, and he couldn't do it. He wanted him to subtract something from his comfortable lifestyle. When I say comfortable lifestyle, I'm not saying that he needed to, you know, sell the yacht, uh, you know, necessarily. Well, Jesus tells him to, but I'm not saying the, com- the comfortable lifestyle of, of, you know, the yacht that he has on the Sea of Galilee. I'm not saying the, the comfortable vacation home that he has in Corinth. What, I, what I'm saying is this. I, I'm saying that, that this man, he had a comfortable moral lifestyle. He, he had all the, all the commandments of the Ten Commandments figured out. He's like, you know, I'm really wealthy. I don't really covet that much. I have, have that down. I, I haven't murdered anybody. I'm really good to my parents. Actually, I, I help them out, you know, financially. And, uh, the, you know, their second home, it's, it's partially covered because of me. You know, all these things, right? I don't lie. I don't steal. Like, I'm a good man. And, uh, and so I have the Ten Commandments down. But, but, but really, at the end of the day, are we any different this man, than this man? Because Jesus is asking him not to add something, but he's asking him to subtract, not from just his, his style of life, but also his morality. He, he's asking him to strip away the thing that he puts the most trust in, his money. And I think that for us, I think that you know, we're often driving this, this uh, you know, car or flying this plane of life. And the question is, are you really that good of a pilot for your life? Uh, are you, as a pilot, like half of the time we're like, I don't think I really know. Like, I, I, you know, I thought this as a kid. I was like, man, adults really have it figured out, you know. Like, they're so smart. Like, they are just brilliant people. And then I got into college and I was like, man, I'm so lost. If, if I was only an adult, like I have like, you know, two more years until I'm really out there in the real world. And when I'm out there in the real world, I'm going to get this, Right. And then I became an adult, and I was like, nobody knows what they're doing. (laughs) Like, from beginning to end, like, half of the world is aimless and dumb, okay? But, like, we are lost. We are. Like, we we, we just, we we don't know what we're doing, and still we fly this plane as as if we believe that we have it all figured out. Beware of a moment of freedom that may bring with it an eternity of consequences. This man wanted to continually give over to these moments of freedom and these financial things, but he didn't know that he was dealing with an eternity of consequences. And let's be honest, this is what we're, what we're dealing with here is the same thing that Adam and Eve dealt with, right? In, in uh, Genesis, Adam and Eve, they, they, they took the fruit and they ate of the fruit and it was a moment of freedom for them. What did the snake tell them? He said, surely God didn't say that. If you eat the fruit, then you are what? You're going to be like him. And they're like, ooh, freedom. Uh, Think about it this way. When you were a kid, freedom was what? It was having a car like your parents, right? When when, when you're an employee, uh, being free is having freedom like your boss. But here's the the deal, right? Then we get the car, and we're like, wait a minute. (laughs) This isn't freedom. And then we get the job as the boss, and we're like, this isn't freedom. And here's the deal. Throughout all of our life, we're trying to trade in moments of freedom that carry with them eternal consequences when it comes to sin. And that's what happened in in the gardens, what happens in our life Today, So notice, I said here uh, that um, Jesus is, he's, he's, born of this, he, he's born of this earthly uh, mother and father. And um, in, in, in uh, or, sorry, he's born of a earthly mother and a heavenly father. And, um, but through us, through sin, uh, man's seed, all right, through the, the lineage of man, uh, sin is, is carried. 
And, and we struggle with this because we want to we do and, and, and make right what is wrong. But Scripture tells us that we can't. That just like there was one Adam, right, there is one Jesus. And, uh, and Jesus is the only one that can make the wrongs right. We say this at Redemption. Salvation isn't a game that we win or lose, but it's a gift that some people receive and some people refuse. Praise God that we have someone to pay for our debts. Praise God that we have someone to become the idol of our life that is worthy. Praise God that all the, the debts that we've racked up, both financial and, uh, and sinful, Jesus can take care of because he's better. He's better than anything else. Following Jesus provides a quiet life without debt collectors calling up our phone. It provides a restful heart that never has to worry if the card you're using will be declined. It provides a generous life where you can freely give to God and those around you in need. I want to finish this scene here. Uh, remember the scene with Bilbo and uh, Gandalf. I didn't finish it. The very last part of this scene is uh, that Bilbo, he's walking out of his, his Shire home. It's a circle door, which is awesome. And they live halfway underground. Also kind of cool, as long as we can keep the moles out, right, the bugs. I had a snake in my basement this past year, which was crazy. He was caught in a bug trap. I'll show you a photo later. It's wild. Um, so as long as those things don't happen. Anyway, cool. Okay, so Bilbo is leaving his Shire home with a circle door. And as he's leaving, uh, he, you know, this is right after, like right after Gandalf says, Bilbo Baggins, don't take me for some conjurer of cheap tricks. I'm not trying to rob you. I'm trying to help you. All your long years, we've been friends. Trust me as you once did. Bilbo's response is this. He says, you're right, Gandalf. The ring must go to Frodo. And then he goes to walk out through the circle door. And uh, Gandalf says, Bilbo, the ring is still in your pocket. Bilbo says, I know, yes. And then this really interesting thing happens. He drops the ring, but when he drops the ring, it doesn't bounce, make a noise, a clink, a clank, nothing. It falls like a five-pound brick. It doesn't move. It doesn't bounce off the stone floor, representing the weight of this ring, the weight of the idol that Bilbo had. Then he says this, I thought of an ending for my book, and he lived happily ever after to the end of his days. I think the symbolism of this moment is more significant than we can pick up. Because it's after Bilbo drops the ring that he delivers the line, and he lived happily ever after to the end of his days. Last week we read 1 Timothy 6.10, but I want to read the message version for you today. It says this, Lust for money brings trouble and nothing but trouble. Going down that path, some lose their footing in the faith completely, and they live to regret it bitterly ever after. Not happily ever after. Bitterly ever after. We can only live happily ever after, after we lay down our idols, just like Bilbo did. But Bilbo, he hands over his idol immediately, and, uh, and immediately after that, he says, and he lived happily ever after. What would happen if we decided that God was enough? He's more than enough. 
that he's better. We don't need anything else. We don't need the idol of money. That we can take all the strings that attach to our heart and we can rip them away. We can tear them away. What would happen? So, the question for you is this. Is God better? Father, I thank you that you are better. Lord, you truly are better. God, we, um, our, our hearts are so quickly attached to shiny things, things that catch our attention. Like we said last week, that the idols start in our eyes, but they make their journey down to our hearts. And that's where they stay. That's where they live. And that's where they corrupt. And so, Lord, I pray that Though things around us will look shiny and beautiful and pretty and, and, and fun and exciting and all these things, God, I pray that the path from our eyes to our hearts, I pray that you would interrupt it, you would sever it. I pray that you would create an environment in our hearts that the only thing that could live there is you and the only thing that would receive glory there is you. And uh, God, I pray that we would, um, we would come to the place where we believe that you are enough, that you're more than enough, that we want nothing else except for you and that you're better. When the moment arises where we get the opportunity to love each other financially, and not just the people in this church, but the people around us, God, what a freeing moment when, when we can just freely decide how much we need to give through prayer, and then we just give it and it doesn't interrupt our life. It doesn't interrupt our idol. Our, our, our hearts are not sad because we don't have the extra money to go on the third vacation. But instead, we got to follow you and to, to worship you and to give freely. God, we want to live free. And if, we, if we're really going to live free, then we can have nothing gripping our hearts except for you. So Lord, teach us to live for eternity and not the 80 years. Rip the idols from our hearts teach us and show us that you are better. That's all it says we ask in the name of your son, Jesus.